Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Melody Musgrove and Dr. Kathy Grace with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. We're so happy to be able to have a little time today with Carolyn Daniel, former executive director of the National Association for the Education of Young Children and former president. And she is now defining herself as an early childhood professional and consultant. Gerilyn has contributed many years to the education and well-being of children all over this country. And she has right now a very strong interest in Achievement Gap. Uh, particularly when we're looking at statistics and we're looking at minority population and how we as a country and we as a profession are going to need to step up. So I'm going to ask Jerry to just start with us. And the first question I want to ask is there has been a focus on achievement gap in the last few years, but some people may not know what that term means. Could you help us to understand what that means? All right. Well, we, the term the achievement gap uh, tends to uh, refer to the standardized test scores that children take throughout their schooling. And what has been found to be quite persistent for a number of years is there is a significant gap between where um, black and brown children score and where white and Asian children score. And that gap has persisted for a number of years. I'd be remiss if I'm sitting here talking to Kathy and didn't say that rural children also, irrespective of their race or color, also struggle with that achievement gap piece. That's basically what it's trying to describe. Now, lots of people don't like that terminology, the achievement gap, because they think that we're blaming the children for scoring poorly and they'd rather call it an opportunity gap. And what they mean by that is when you look at things such as poverty and under-resourced schools and under-resourced communities, um, those are the children who are, are uh, primarily scoring you know, in the lower uh, range. Uh, and they say, well, if you say achievement gap, then it's as though the children haven't done their job. And so they want to talk about the opportunities that they live in communities where they do not have the opportunities that other children have. So they don't have good schools. They don't have ready internet access, for example. They live in a community where there is a lot of implicit bias based on racism. And I guess the bottom line for me is I continue to use the term achievement gap because I'm trying to figure out and help people in early childhood understand that they have a role to play in this. And I think people will feel overwhelmed if they think they've got to uh, upend poverty and cure all the racism in the world and, and so on. I'm trying to give them the peace that they can put their arms on and, and improve practice. Uh, I say I, but this is really, um, it's an effort that the, uh, the Black Caucus of NAYC has taken up as our focus for the next several years. Defining that term achievement gap, you also raised some other issues around opportunities that are maybe more systemic 
that are now in the education system per se. So do you want to touch a little bit more on some of the the gaps in opportunity that would be related, such as health or housing, mm-hmm. poverty, as you mentioned. So what are your thoughts about that? I think the first order of business is that we all need to stop pretending that education is not political. You know, there are, there are numerous political dynamics around education. Who gets the resources? How many resources they get? What's the structure of the system itself? And so some of the systemic barriers that can happen uh, based on the haves and the have-nots, really. Uh, um, Housing codes that keep even um, uh, middle-class families, middle-class black families, middle-class Latino families from moving into communities where the schools are known to be good. For years, there were housing codes that that realtors wouldn't sell to those families. Uh, There are um, uh, issues related to how schools are structured. Schools along through here and, you know, up through time have been primarily based on um, uh, what we have typically called the majority culture, you know, white, middle class, and so on. Now, the demographics are changing significantly and those folks aren't in the majority anymore but that's the structure of the school and that structure has not traditionally made room for or even bothered to try to understand other cultural perspectives or even allowed for um, uh, the hindrances that can happen when you're in an under-resourced community Um, People talk about a cradle-to-prison pipeline, and that has to do with the rules and regulations uh, that have, and the the fact that children of young children of color are not ever given the benefit of the doubt. You know, people have low expectations for them, and once you put that ceiling on a child, and you don't you don't believe that they can learn, they get stuck there, and when you get stuck, you act out. Um, I, I could go off on a tangent about zero tolerance in schools. You know, that really is um, uh, a problem uh, for children of color because once, once you are banned from the classroom because somebody um, uh, didn't allow you to do something that kids do, you know, or, or is punishing you for that, uh, that out-of-classroom time adds to the achievement gap issues because you're not learning. Well, I know that we're looking at uh, some political decisions or some, uh, I guess you could say, state decisions that are political around uh, perhaps requiring work requirements for families to continue to receive uh, SNAP or food stamps, Medicaid. And people may think, well, that's separate from the education of young children, but most early childhood educators would say that that's very much a part of it. How can we help the general public better understand in terms of for the sake of the country? Let's just say we don't have children. Let's just say that our children are grown. Our children may live in another country, but we still live in this country. So for the sake of the country, how can we raise the awareness among general public about this is not good for the country? 
we know it's not good for the children, but in the, the country as a whole. Okay. Well, I think I would start my response to that by saying that a democracy, a successful democracy, is predicated on an enlightened population, you know, and and um, uh, the ability to to be eloquent in stating the needs and issues of a given community and the give and take and the consensus building. Our democracy is at its healthiest when we have an educated populace. I mean, that's, I think that was an assumption about democracy. Uh, but funny thing about a democracy, if you don't, if you're not highly intentional about maintaining the basic principles and following through on them, you can undermine it. And the next thing you know is you're, you're in a situation where, in many ways, the, situ- the situation we have now, where we, have, we are not, we are not being attentive enough to meeting the needs of, of those communities that are, um, are, are under-resourced. And, um, and this, this notion that, you know, my, my grandma used to say, well, the rich get richer, you know, kind of thing, where we, we're not paying attention and doing unto others as we would have, have them um, do unto us. Uh, the thing about this achievement gap is that it starts really, really early. And uh, for the sake of our democracy, we have to get after it really, really early. So there was a, uh, a session here at, at the conference that um, Ron Ferguson, who's in charge of a uh, achievement gap initiative at Harvard University, said that when you look at the brain scans of a two-year-old, and compare two-year-olds from various communities and life circumstances, that it is clear from the brain scans that early that there's a gap. And so it has to do with those, those life experiences. And that's why the people who talk about opportunity are saying the opportunities that that baby, that toddler at two, have had are already impacting them. And it is the whole child. You know, it's the health issues. It's the nutrition issues. And very much the education of the parent. And most research specifically says the education of the mother that makes all the difference in the world um, to a child's trajectory. And so that's why we have to care. This thing starts really, really early. It is real in the sense that you see it physiologically in the brain scans. You see it in behaviors and and the social conditions of of families and communities uh it is persistent that gap has hung around you know for years and years and years and um but the bright spot is we can do something about that um a uh, an educational reformer of a number of years ago um named ron edmund said that we we really know already what we need to do to maximize the potential of every child. The question is, knowing that, and if you really care about children, how do you feel about the fact that we're not doing it yet? You know, that's a really uh, poor translation of, you know, uh, what he said, but it's, the gist of it was, we know how to do this. When are we going to get about the business of doing it? Um, it's important for our democracy. It's important that we care and are highly intentional about 
lifting kids up to their full potential. I think that you have explained, in my words, eloquently, about why this is a national issue. I think the work of Dr. James Heckman, from a a standpoint of why it's good for the economy, the investment that if we make in young children is giving us a far greater rate of interest and return on that investment than most anything else that we could invest in. And that it is, I think, maybe a time, if you want to look at it as a bright spot, to have all of these factors converge to where we as a collective society, if we are educated about the need for early opportunities that are provided to all children, not just some, that we can turn the corner because across the world, we are not leading the world in terms of how we invest in our children. That may be a surprise to some folks, but we're not. And uh, we're possibly starting to see that we're getting left behind in a global sense. If you look at ratings and you look at uh, potential workforce and so forth. So I want to ask you one more question because you've been so kind to, to share with us. Do you think that the work that the Black Caucus has taken on within AYC, you said in the next several years, do you have a specific goal in terms of policy changes, uh, what there would be in the way of conversations that would be more at the national level so that if people who are listening to this want to be a part of it, what they would want to do, look for, need to do so that they can help strengthen the voice? Okay. I think that uh, our first, our, you know, if, if you can think of our goals as on, on various rungs, you know, of a ladder, first of all, most early childhood people, particularly those folks who work in the birth to five or, you know, birth to just before kindergarten, don't see the achievement gap as their issue, you know, and probably because it's about standardized tests, which young kids don't take, but they see it as a grade school effort, a high school issue, rather. Um, uh, and, And so our first task is to raise awareness and to help people see that, even in the vision statement of NAYC, when it says you, we want children, all children to reach their full potential. Well, we know all children aren't. And so we want the notion of the achievement gap, the opportunity gap, whatever you're going to call it, to be part of the regular conversations and advocacy of this early childhood organization. We've seen it you know, trickling into the dialogue. And so we're really excited about that. In our efforts, we've made a point of putting panels together, for for example, and bringing in people like Ron Ferguson from Harvard and Pedro Nuguro from UCLA, people who are out there in the education community doing this work, who understand the range of issues, bringing them into the early childhood conference and having them talk about these issues and explain the complexities of it. So awareness is really big for us. And we figure once people are aware, then now the burden is on each of us to figure out, oh boy, now what do I do about this? To reflect on our own practice, to reflect on our own advocacy about what we're doing. There is some good news in the sense that there are places where people are trying to tackle this and so I keep going back to Ron, Fer- Ron Ferguson. He's uh, got something called a basics campaign. And the idea 
there is in it. It has to do with attacking these gap issues early. There are five basics, and I hope I can get them all right. But one is to give loads of love and manage stress in the family, okay, and in the, and in the community, because stress can be toxic for parents and kids. Another is to count and compare. Another is to sing and point and name. Uh, another is have plenty of movement. The notion of play is part of it. And so he gives these strategies, these kind of five basic things that parents can readily do. It is a campaign. There's a Boston Basics. There's a Yonkers Basics. And it's something that families and communities can do together to try to ameliorate the kinds of things that create the gap in the first place. So that's, that's one strategy. There are other scholars, for example, who are working on helping teachers reflect on who are you as a teacher in terms of your culture, your perspectives, your biases. We've all got biases. But let's examine ourselves and then let's pay attention to the different, what may be different cultural capital that young children bring. Everything in a young black child's life is not terrible, okay? <laughs> Parents have done really good jobs around the cultural survival of the race, you know? What are the positives that the kids bring into that classroom? And now, if we're going to be the Godskin in our work, how do we now build on that? And that's what developmentally appropriate practice is. Who is this specific child? What are the strengths they bring? And then building on that. So we know, as Edmund said, we know a lot about this. We just have to be far more intentional about getting it done. Geraldine Daniel, thank you so much for my pleasure. spending the time with us and giving us a very powerful message. And one that I hope we will seriously think about every day that we go to work, whether we're in the classroom, whether we're teaching adults, whether we are engaged in making decisions. I just appreciate your time and thank you again. Thank you for having me. And now it's time for our lit bit. This is a fun little poem for those of you who like cats. This is the poem Cat by Marilyn Singer and it's from poetryfoundation.org. I prefer warm fur, a perfect fire to lie beside, a cozy nap where I can nap, an empty chair when she's not there. I want heat on my feet, on my nose, on my hide. No cat I remember dislikes December inside. That is Cat by Marilyn Singer. Give your child the gift of language through poetry. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. We're always interested in stories about children and those who care for them. If you'd like to share your story, email us at edsup at olemiss.edu. Until next time, bye-bye. Ed's Up is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.